Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Marshall Poe of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you'd like to support us, please go to any New Books Network website. There you can make a tax-deductible contribution. Just click the Donate to the NBN link and follow the instructions. Alternatively, you can click the Amazon link before you make your Amazon purchases. Since the NBN is a member of the Amazon Affiliates Program, Amazon pays us a small fee for referrals. Whether you can help us out or not, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Ollie Mould about his new book, Urban Subversion, The Creative City, which was published by Routledge in 2015. So welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Ollie Mould, who is a lecturer in the Geography Department at Royal Holloway, University of London about his new book, Urban Subversion and the Creative City, which was published by Routledge in 2015. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, This is a really fascinating book. Um, It's unbelievably well-timed in terms of the things that are going on, um, not just in London, but but much more globally um, in the contemporary city. And really usefully for an academic book, it's not just kind of critical, but also it gives us a bit of of a vision of how we might do our cities really differently. So I suppose the place to start is, could you tell me a bit about the kind of process of writing the book and where, where the ideas for the book came from? Yeah, um, well, I um, have been looking at creativity within an urban context pretty much since the start of my PhD, really. And um, there was a slight funny trajectory because after the PhD, I took um, a position in a, in a um, was essentially a policy unit in, in a London-based creative industries um, think tanky sort of thing. And um, I, so I've seen the, the creative industries develop um, from a political perspective um, and how that links in with some of the urban development processes that are going on at the time. And um, as I was doing that, I kind of became more more aware of the ways in which these these processes had a sort of political angle and they were being used to develop a particular kind of city. Um, I ended up then after that going back into academia and developing these ideas critically. So um, I really um, wanted to write something which um, was a critical take at some of these creative city ideas, developing on the, the critiques that were going on at the time in geography, particularly, you know, Jamie Peck's ideas and and, and all the sort of um, very um, – uh, the discourses that were very much going against the ideas of the creative city and the creative class. But I was at also looking at some subcultural stuff. Um, I was interested in those people that were doing things in the city creatively that perhaps not um, doing it commercially. So, um, you know, I was looking at particular kinds of subcultures and parkour, um, skateboarding, street art, urban exploration, those kinds of things. But those, the, the sort of, the, the, politics of these people fascinated me and I saw them as really doing creativity in the city but in a very different way to which I had sort of seen from a political perspective when I had that one of those positions in London so 
Um, I was really interested in what these guys were doing because I saw that as an inherently creative act, but a creativity that was very different to the sort of official rhetoric. So I wanted to um, write something which posited the two together and kind of really championed uh, the creativity that was being done in a much more visceral sort of, um, you know, subversive way, I guess. So that's really where the idea came from. And so the, in writing the book, it was really, uh, you know, trying to articulate a lot of debates, a lot of debates and narratives that I've been talking about really for the last, well, five or six years before that, really. So it was an attempt to kind of collate all those ideas and uh, bring it together in a nice, uh, coherent narrative. Yeah, and the book the book captures that really nicely, actually, because it juxtaposes the kind of the part one of you know this is the policy imagination with the part two of well here's actually what's going on um, that presents you know if not uh, an outright alternative but certainly um, a set of practices that you know gives us a different vision of, of how we might use the city and and one of the ways you do this really early on in the book is by talking about the story of Man on Wire which. Um, was a kind of an urban intervention in, I think it's late 70s, um, and then was recently a documentary, and then very recently uh, was a film as well. Yes, that's right, yes. Um, it, you know, I, I've um, I've been aware, you know, I, I read about um, what Emmanuel Petit did, and uh, and it struck me as a, just one of those kind of urban subversion um, performances, if you like, kind of um, par excellence. It was just, you know, the guy had a, an, an innate skill uh, and he um, intervened in the city and he did it completely covertly um, as the film's document. Um, yes, he was performing and I think there's there's an element of the kind of spectacle to it, which, you know, has is kind of problematic. But I, when I read the book and I saw the documentary uh, and indeed the, the, the most recent film, it's, it's obvious that... Um, he, he had a real desire to do it. It was like his want. There was something just within him that kind of he felt compelled to do it. And I, and I think that as as you'll know, as the book progresses, I talk a lot about desire, you know, from Deleuze and Guattari's idea. And it, and it really struck me as a good way to to premise that idea of desire being an inherently creative act or creative process. So there's that's why I use that vignette because it for me it not only is it a highly spectacular version of what I'm talking about in the book, but also it, it really foregrounds it in a, in a notion of, you know, it, it, it was his desire to do it and it's kind of a really willful sort of act. And I think that sets up a lot of the, the, the ideas, and particularly in the latter half of the book. Um, so that's really why it's there, because I think it's just a really, really nice, good, uh, sort of perfect example of what I'm talking about. Actually, you mentioned desire and the kind of broader theoretical framework yeah. that that's placed within. I wonder if you could say a bit about the theorists that are important to your analysis before we get into kind of thinking about definitions of creative cities. So yeah. obviously uh, Deleuze, but also De Serto are really important to the book. Yes, they are. Yes. I mean, I think there's a certain amount of, um, uh, you know, a theoretical postulation, I guess. I'm trying, you know, trying to think of the ways in which creativity can be, or urban subversion can be best thought of. Um, through through a social theoretical lens. Now, um, you know the most <clears throat> obvious or the most kind of appropriate, I guess, is is Deleuze, Deleuze's ideas, particularly of desire production and lines of flight, um, because it you know I think it really captures that idea of trying to break away from conformity, trying to 
um, you know, denormalize really, trying to break away from a, a sort of hegemonic idea. So it's it to me, it really felt like a, a you know a decent and a very appropriate um, language, really, to to articulate kind of the, the kinds of things which I was seeing. Um, you know, these, these these subversive acts, particularly from the subcultural perspective, but also the, just the sort of little things that people were doing. Some of the you know the vignettes I talk about, the soldier mat and everything else. I think there's you know, it's an, it, it just, to me, seemed like a very appropriate language to use and almost, and it explained the reasonings behind it as well. So Deleuze and his ideas uh, are particularly influential in that respect. De Soto, um, you know, he um very famous for his Walking the City um, uh, chapter. Uh, you know, obviously there's, there's parallels there because he... he starts the chapter by going at the top of the World Trade Centers, which is what I do in my book as well, going at the top of the World Trade Centers, and um, similarly at the end as well, and not the Trade Centers, but to a similar point in the skyline. Um, so, you know, Dissoto's ideas, I think, speak to that as well, that, that idea of, of being tactical, kind of little sort of pinpricks in the... He talks about the strategies, like tactics within a strategy, and, you know, it, it, again, it just sort of rung true that a lot of what these people are doing, they're trying to puncture that, that sort of large scale kind of behemoth, if you like, or which is a creative city or, a, you know, the global city. And it, you know, these theories really articulate the reasoning very, very well. Um, you know, and they have their kind of problems like, to a certain extent. Um, you know, um, Doreen Massey does a wonderful critique of Tissotto's work in her book, For Space. And I think there's a lot of credence in that. But from, from the stuff that I was seeing and, and you know, the, the ways in which these people were doing it, it really struck a chord. Um, you know, I, I also uh, look at John Baudrillard's stuff a bit um, when he talks about the objects and he talked about the metaphysics of objects with form and functionality. And I think that, again, was an interesting way, particularly to think about the non-human aspect of these things. You know, a lot of these urban subversion practices involve reappropriating the urban environment like taking something like a park bench or a, a wall and turning it into something else like a something to grind or skateboard on or some jump to jump over in a parkour performance so Bojar's stuff about kind of um releasing the functions of objects i think is important here as well so i've taken sort of bits and pieces of, of theoretical arguments which i think fitted what i was looking at um you know i, I appreciate these sit in a larger kind of mandate and a lot of these which often can be conflicting um but to me i thought that the, the these particular kinds of uh idioms really you know really shone through in in, in the work that i was doing and in the, in the things that i was seeing so that's why i've used them so you mentioned the kind of like the behemoth of, of the creative city yeah. and how you know these theorists were useful to you to kind of make sense of how people's practices are challenging or, or transforming mm -hmm particular urban settings what what is this uh this idea then what 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 do we mean by the creative city well i mean it's 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 a great question because i think that it's it's often changing i mean you know we can uh we can chart the language back to 1995 and um charles landry and biacchini when they wrote the sort of toolkits for the creative city it was a demos paper um and you know back then it was really an idea to um try and um plug into the new economy the sort of you know a lot of the the change the shifts and the global shifts in in the way the economy was operating you know to um 
the creative industries to knowledge economies to high tech to biotech to you know to industries that um much more predicated upon human capital you know this is an idea which is not you know this is economic geography 101 right so and i guess what landry and biachini were trying to do is to articulate an urban system which plugs into that like that, that makes the most of this the resource which fuels these economies which is essentially creativity people's you know human ingenuity ingenuity so from a etymological perspective that's kind of where it came from um in you know in 2015 um in the in the intervening you know um 20 30 years i mean it, it it's it's gone from something which was very much a kind of like i say just thinking of an urban environment which stimulates creativity to something which is much more hard much more physical much more you know they're building all sorts of um large scale developments media cities cultural quarters um you know large scale um gated communities which are designed specifically to try and um stimulate this creativity at, at any cost because it's obviously seen as the sort of the, the 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 fairy dust which makes which makes cities grow so you know to me the creative city is is it's a, there's um, soft policies to it and there's hard policies to it. Uh, and I try and outline, outline those in the book. Um, and it's constantly changing. It's constantly adapting. Um, and I think now, you know, we could, it, it, it's become so amorphous because the, the, the notion of creativity has sort of bled into all different factors of the economy that, you know, the creative city is something which you can see in, and, you know, in shopping developments, you know, people try and kind of talk about stimulating the, the creative milieu and, you know, they often have, they might have um, uh, hot desks in there or, or space for artists or whatever. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's become so ingrained in urban development that, you know, when when people are developing cities, I think it's very difficult to not talk about the creative city because they've become so much part of how cities are developing. Yeah, and in the book, you talk about how it's dependent on it a couple of key ideas, some are to yeah. do with, um, I guess, visions of particular kinds of workers or a particular kind of population around this idea of a creative class. And then others are to do with, as you've described, the kind of the harder policies of mm. media cities or, or cultural quarters, which are two examples you use. So I wonder if you could kind of unpack those ideas about both what the hard policies are yeah. and also who the kind of the ideal type worker is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like you say, I think that, you know, I try and split them into these two like hard and soft. And I think what, looking at them and sort of having worked with a number of cities and trying to develop a sort of creative city policy or, or environment, um, it's, you know, I've noticed that, that there's often these two sort of tools. So there's a soft side of it. And, you know, these are often um, quite um small scale to a certain extent, but they're, they're sort of more tacit. So, you know, I use the example of Sydney and their branding exercise. You know, I, I was, was in Sydney for a bit and I kind of remember speaking to people and, and actually seeing this process come about. And, you know, it was really an attempt to brand the city in a very, in a very particular way. And this, again, this was in 2005, 2006, right after the back of, you know, the success of Richard Florida's book, Rise, Rise of the Creative Class. And we'll talk about him in a minute. But, it, it was at a time when you know creativity was was the thing to do, and you know it was it was all about trying to make your city more creative. However, that was 
defined and in this case relatively badly but you know so these cities were implementing these soft policies so they were branding the cities in a particular way you know spending a lot of money on advertising it globally um you know going to real estate fairs and and sort of saying oh yeah come to our city we've got all these wonderful um tax breaks for example you know um I, my phd was on the film industry and there's a there's a real um uh, desire for many cities to give tax breaks to these um uh, runaway productions to film in their city. So things like tax breaks, you know, little policy levers that can be pulled and twitched to to um, entice creative activity. So in this case, you know, a lot of creative industries activities of film, uh, computer games is big at the moment, trying to get tax breaks for computer games industries. Um, you know, because these industries are seen as very footloose and they can really go anywhere, it doesn't, you know, cities can, or regions uh, can, can, don't have to do much to, to be seen to attract to them. So tax breaks, branding, you know, they don't have to do a great deal of kind of hard infrastructural building, although they do. Um, you know, uh, as I said, the second bit of it is the hard stuff. And uh, when, I, when I went around the, the number of different cities, it was amazing that they were they were trying to, you know, build these massive infrastructural sites. You know, I look, I was started off looking at media cities, so um, – you know, I was based in Salford for a time, and that's kind of how I got into it. And the, the media city up in Salford, you know, there was when they were building that, when they were sort of looking to uh, formulate it, they, they went to Seoul, they went to Dubai, they went to Copenhagen, and they looked at the media cities that were there, and they essentially modelled them on on these on these other media cities. So, you know, it was they were seen as okay. Well, if, if we build it, they will come. And obviously, the media city in the UK that was embedded in a much more complicated sort of process of the BBC's relocation. But essentially, you know, it was an attempt to build, you know, a, a creative city from scratch, uh, which is what they did in Dubai and Seoul and in Copenhagen. So, you know, it, it, it was, it's an attempt to kickstart this process to sort of short circuit the very, I guess, long process of trying to wait for these people to come and build it up from like, the, the ground up. You know, none of that. Let's just build it. You know, let's just pour loads of money into it and, and build it and hopefully kickstart the economy that way. So it's this kind of dual nature, the hard and the soft policies, which are the characteristics of the creative city for me. And what about then this kind of almost sort of godfather figure now who's both, you know, um, embedded in so many policy documents and is also at the heart of kind of critiques as well, Richard Florida. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of devote a chapter to the creative class simply because I think that, you know, I'm trying to reflect the um, the, the, the weight of critique that has gone against the, his, his stuff. I mean, it's an interesting idea because, you know, it, there's, there's a lot to admire in Richard Florida's um, work uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I think that he's trying, he's attempting to, you know, shift the way that, that, that sort of cities are being done and the way that the economy is kind of structured. But unfortunately he does that in a way which kind of is, a, you know, just sort of emperor's new clothes. It just dresses up the problems in a slightly different way. And, um, and I think that that's a, you know, the nub of the, of the many, many critiques is essentially that, that it's just a sort of, it, it's a redressing of the same old problem, just slapping a label creativity on it. Um, and, you're right. He, his work has become so popular and so ingrained in in this rhetoric that it's difficult to to not talk about. It's difficult to you know to to 
not to talk about it when you're doing a critique of the creative city because it's just so ingrained in it. When I was going to around the, these other cities and looking at the having interviews in with people in their offices, there's always a copy of the creative class on their bookshelf. There was all, and I pointed out, and you know, you know, and I'd asked them, say, how influential were those ideas? And they would, and they would wax lyrical about it, you know, because it, it it was written in such a way as to to um, you know to plug into these these people's sorts of mindsets, plug into the urban managers, the policy makers, the think tanks, you know, and it, and and it was lapped up. And I think that um, you know, and. and that's why it's so influential. It became very, very quickly ingrained in just everything that was being done at that time and still is to a certain extent. And so critiquing that is important because obviously it carries with it all these issues which I outlined, the kind of the nature of, you know, it creates a service class, um, you know, massive gentrification. Um, and it's and it needs to be, you know, tackled. It needs to be critiqued. And I think it's getting through. And, you know, often um, you'll see now that um, – People like Jamie Peck and the larger critiques of the Florida's work are actually talked about in a similar way within these sort of policy documents. Um, but really, it, I like to sort of think of the creative city or the creative class idea. It's kind of dead, but still dominant. You know, it, it might have been critiqued, but the ideas have kind of filtered through and they're just been kind of manifest in a slightly different way. So I take a bit of time in dissecting that because there's lots of different things that are, that are wrong with it and you can dissect it. So that's why I kind of dwelt on that because it's it's just become so influential. And like I say, it's kind of dispersed now. It's almost as if it, you know, it's, his name is gone, but his ideas are kind of multiplied and kind of spread virus-like through the urban managerial system. It's difficult to kind of pinpoint it, but it kind of needs to be done really to make sure it doesn't continue to spread i guess yeah i mean and, and the book pivots around that point actually there's quite a useful sort of two three page or almost list of um the problems and issues with this you know sort of thinking about homogenizing spaces you know touristic unrealistic visions of the city mm. um as you say you know kind of a, a vision of a essentially a kind of a service class uh, and the pivot takes us to what you call uh, lines of flight away from that version of the creative city. And mm. you give examples of things like situationism, the flanner, this source of, of things. So, so can you summarize what, what these lines of flights are? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it I guess, you know, this is comes back to the number of what I was talking about. The, the creativity idea for me really is, is more in line with the, these, these ideas, you know, the situationist ideas and stuff. And, and, that's why I think it's really important to to posit them first, because a lot of the stuff that Guy Debord and, and you know unitary urbanism and um, Constance New Babylon, what they, were, what they were trying to do is actually, I think anyway, talk about a creative city. They were trying to talk about ways in which people are um, interacting or being proactive in their city rather than kind of being passive consumers. And you know, Debord's stuff about the spectacle is all about the kind of passive consumption of society. So um, to me, it really struck. It, you know, these things are inherently about creativity, about urban creativity. And so, and it, and it, you know, yes, these, these things are being talked about in geography and in other areas, but I didn't really see a particularly strong narrative that was using them as a critique of Richard Florida's stuff and the creative city more generally. So that's why I did it. I, uh, to me, they seem like an obvious way of critiquing it. And yes, it's about 
you know, the, the, that's what unitary urbanism and, and situationism is really all about, like sort of, you know, being, uh, you know, tactical, I guess, like puncturing that city, like trying to sort of break out of a, of a particular kind of social slumber, I guess, and just doing things which give you an experience of the city, which is new, which is different. You know, that is the creative process to me. It's like creating new things which don't exist. And the creative city doesn't do that at all. It kind of just replicates what already exists in just a new way, in a kind of, you know, in a slightly different way. So it, it I, I didn't really, in, in the researching the book, I mean, I saw, you know, the situationist stuff and all these wonderful examples um, of um, unitary urbanism were there and they were being used, but like I say, not as a critique to the creative city. So that's why I put them in there because I, I felt that it allowed us to, or allowed me to kind of say, look, this stuff's already there. You know, these, these kind of social critiques and artistic critiques are there. They're just not being utilised perhaps in, in the way that they could be. Um, so that's why that's there to really kind of alert people that like, this stuff's here. It's been going on for ages, and it's really, really, really creative. It's really good, and it really helps it to um, uh, to enliven what creativity in the city is. The um, the sort of manifestations of these uh, practically, um, I, I guess you know that the lines of flight are both kind of theoretical, but with, with practical elements, but, but the real kind of story of practices comes in your discussion of urban subversion. And I think there are two things I'd like to know about that. One is what is urban subversion, but also how does it work in London with, with the story of South Bank? Well, what is urban subversion? Well, I think that it's for me, um, it's a process. And I think I talk about it as kind of a verb, not a noun. It's not, you know, to me, urban subversion is constantly seeking out um, different ways of interacting with your city. Now, this is where I talk about Baudrillard's stuff. And you know, he talks about functionality overriding the function of an object. So, you know, within an urban context, a park bench, for example, you know, it's been built for us to sit on. Um, but, you know, if you use it to skateboard on, if you use it to jump over or you use it to stand onto, um chant political slogans you know those you're using that bench differently you're 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 releasing new functions that are there but but they're hidden by the functionality by a kind of technocratic and a little feverian um functionality so urban subversion is for me is about seeking out these these new functions of, of of the city of kind of the terrain or the sort of the physicality of the city i guess and also within yourself you know thinking about you know, changing your changing your behaviour, changing the ways in which you interact with the city. You know, not being that. You know, not kind of being that passive consumer, not being that kind of uh, you know the, the routinized person that interacts with the city in a very banal way, like kind of talking about it, looking at the city in a, in a, in a different light. And so, urban subversion is really just about trying to trying to do that. And you know, I, the reason I talk about particular kinds of subcultures is because these these people are doing it in um, have been doing it for a while and doing it in really interesting ways. And they built up particular cultures and subcultures around that. So skateboarding, urban exploration, parkour, you know, these are sort of ossified groupings of, of people who have been um, reappropriating the urban environment in interesting ways. And yes, they've built up these kinds of identifiable subcultures, which can be co-opted. They can, you know, have internal kinds of problems with gender politics and class politics and you know, parkour is a good example of being kind of you know, <laughs> selling out to a certain extent. Um, 
but within that, there are still kinds of subversive elements. And the reason I wanted to talk about the um, South Bank Centre in this is because, uh, and the skateboarders there, is because for me, it's a, you know, a really uh, viable and really sort of um, good example of the ways in which urban subversion comes about in the city. Because, and it's very timely, of course, because it was, um, you know, uh, happened in the sort of 18 months, well, happened in the time period I was writing this book, actually. So I, th- I felt that it was, a you know, really quite, uh, a sort of fresh angle on it. Um, and the reason I think that they're engaging in urban subversion is because they were fighting for the subversive use of that space. Now, the history of the Undercroft and the history of skateboarding at the South Bank is very uh, long and protracted, and, you know, it's not necessarily something we can go into now. Um, there are plenty of resources online to look at that. But essentially, these people have been using the, the Undercroft space subversively for you know since the 70s and you know the south bank center have attempted to get rid of them on a number of occasions they, they've tried to they've turned off the lights they've um put they've used it as a, uh, a waste dump they put gravel down and each time the skaters have overcome this they've got together as a society as a, as a kind of as a community sorry and um made it skatable again and you know we can talk about the kind of ways in which it's kind of, you know, skateboarding has become a subculture that has been commercialized and stuff, but there is an ethos of this, of this place. You know, I used to skate it as a kid and, um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who've used it and it really is a place that kind of oozes subversion because it, it, they're using it because they want to continue this process of skateboarding, which is about community. It's about, um, you know, youth engagement you know, there's all the sorts of things which uh, I guess uh, at the South Bank, what the South Bank Centre wanted to turn into, wouldn't give. You know, turning it into retail outlets and you know, kind of a more prescribed version of youth engagement around you know high culture. They were reacting against that, and I think that was a very subversive process because they were trying to maintain a sort of a, a non-commercial or a sort of anti-corporate agenda, and. You know, yes, there were there was problems with it, and I guess you could say it kind of frayed around the edges at times, and it you know it sort of sometimes spilt over into kind of branding and imageability and stuff. And but I don't think that's really the point. I think that it it, it was allowing the the undercross space to continue to flourish, to continue to kind of allow it to subvert people's behaviour because that's what that's what it does. You go there, and it's a very different kind of place to what surrounds it. And I think it's it's it was worth saving for that because it's 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 like gold dust in a city like London where these kinds of spaces are you know they're disappearing all the time. It was really really important to save it because it it it, it doesn't adhere or it, or at least it problematizes that creative city corporate commercialized landscape. And I think for that it was it was really really important that it was that it was worth saving. Yeah, particularly that part of central london as well um which had seen yes. you know kind of unbelievable levels of um urban transformation over the last 10, 10 to 20 yeah, years absolutely i mean you know i talk about I, I mean i use this rather crass term which i kind of almost regret using this a sliver of subversive spaces really because it's it, I, I was like you, you look at it and you can say okay well there's skateboarding there there's kind of leak streets got the um uh the, the street arts the legal street arts site which is a really interesting case study all by itself um, and then you've got, you know, the Vauxhall Walls, which is where people went to sort of practice parkour. And then, you know, 
I guess urban exploration, Battersea, although not now, of course, but, um, you know, the Battersea Power Station was, you know, speaking to explorers, was, was almost like a training ground. It was like ground zero for, for urban exploration. So, it, it, yeah, you're right. And it, it, these spaces are disappearing. And, you know, it, the ability to do this stuff is becoming more and more difficult. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's detrimental to a city like London because you're kind of squeezing out sort of more, you know, visceral creative practices and that can only lead to, you know, that that's, that's I think, a bad thing. It reduces the kind of vitality, you know, reduces youth engagement. And it's, um, you know, something that needs to be resisted. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's good, I think, to see this um, both theoretically, as you do in the second half of the book, but mm. also to ground it in the much broader um, policy context that the start of the book does, because it, it suggests that these are not unique singular and kind of unusual um urban disputes actually they're part of something uh, much bigger and much more global yeah yeah um I, I wonder if we could conclude by thinking about um the end of the book and the uh the vision of a range of other types of creative city that um you set forward the industrial the spectacularized the activist yeah. and the social um obviously you know we don't need to go through them um in great detail individually, but mm. I wonder if you could say a bit about the kind of um, other visions of creative cities. Yeah, well, um, yes, I mean, I, I posited these sort of four things as kind of thought experiments, really, and I was like, well, how, if, if we kind of took a particular strand of what urban subversion could be considered to be and followed it to its logical conclusion, what would that sort of city look like? And, um, you know, I think it's a useful exercise because it gets us to think about you know, what, what would happen if we kind of carry down a particular path? So, yes, um, you know, there are obviously the first two, the industrial city and the sort of the spectacular cities, I guess, are sort of the more um, ones that we perhaps don't want to be. Um, you know, I, I think that they're fairly, you know, I, I use fairly kind of negative language, I guess, when trying to think about it. And, um, you know, uh, the stuff I've done around tactical urbanism feeds into that because it's kind of, you know, I think that given the, the the nature of 2000 london in 2015 in particular it's very difficult to to be subversive without sort of immediate co-option or a sort of an immediate attempt to kind of be reappropriated by you know a rampant capitalist discourse which is looking for subversion or new things to kind of to market so it it, it was an attempt to sort of think about what 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 would a city like that look like if we kind of turned that up to 11 and you know it it that's kind of what the creative industrial city is. And, and you know, the, the other examples as well, the spectacularized what would happen if there's, you know, completely mediated. Um, so, yeah, so it's an attempt to sort of think about these, these how we follow these creative city ideas through. And I think, uh, you know, it, it was an attempt to sort of say, look, these are perhaps cities we don't, we don't, don't want to be in. Um, I think you, could, you can probably tell from the way I've written it that, you know, I'm particularly um, uh, influenced by Christiania in Copenhagen. Mm, yeah. So I've been to a couple of times now and um I guess it, you know maybe with a you know maybe being slightly romanticized about it but I think that it's it's um it's a it's a very very useful model of how to um to do you know to do to be a creative city because it 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 uses sort of base level kind of laws I guess you know I talk about no running and no hard drugs and all that sort of stuff and and it really creates an environment which you know, is subversive. And what I mean by that, it, it, it's, 
you know, it's difficult and it, and it can be abrasive. And, you know, you go there and you do feel uncomfortable. But I think that it over time, you realise that, that it's all that is all due to a that's all because it's kind of trying to create something new. And it's trying to create these these communities and these um, knowledges and this is subjectivities, which are far more beneficial than those that are created by the creative city around it, i.e. Copenhagen. So it, you know, it's an attempt to try and use these ideas and think about, well, can they be scaled up? And if they did, kind of what would they look like? Um, you know, and it, it, it's really an attempt to sort of think about a creative city differently. Now, yes, you could argue that, that, that there's a sort of rose-tinted look at these things, but, you know, I think that they're important thought experiments to have because if we don't do it, then it's, you know, we risk kind of falling back into the, the old habits. So that's what it's really about. It's just kind of trying to speculate and trying to um, see if these things can work. And is, is this the kind of thing you're going to be continuing with in terms of a, <laughs> of a new book project? Yes, I think so, yes. I mean, I, there, there's, you know... Uh, I've been doing a lot of work recently around kind of the, the, the resistances to anti, also the anti-gentrification um, campaigns in London, um, you know, and particularly the sort of the creative use or the creative responses to it. Um, you know, and there's, there's, there seems to be new ones every day that I find on Twitter and Facebook and like new groups of people that are getting together to resist a particular kind of development um, you know, I've been particularly um, involved with the Robin Hood Gardens and the Balfour Estate in East London, um, but there's, there's South London and Brixton and all, all over the city, and that's just London. You know, there's places in Birmingham and the, the rest of the UK and the rest of the world that are, um, you know, really struggling to maintain a, a sort of a life that they see as um, important to them in the face of these large scale changes, and and I and I think that. The the cities, the sort of thought experiments that I outline at the end of this book, um, I think it's a worthwhile project in trying to flesh those out, in trying to think about them in a more, uh, you know, in a more grounded way, and think about look, what are the theoretical tools that will allow us to create a, a new discourse that will better resist these sort of large scale hyper gentrification processes. And that's really what the you know the next aim is of well the next projects I've got are about really to think about ways in which we can create a new discourse really a new language um, about that and I think that there's various other theoretical um, ideas that, that around that um, I've been looking a bit about um, Sarah Ahmed's work on queer phenomenology about objects and the sort of um, the way in which objects can the agency of objects allow us they they have a kind of uh, the ability to kind of queer our behaviour, and there's a material recalcitrance, which um, which Jane Bennett talks about, which I think is a wonderful phrase. That you know, looking at the kind of the non-human parts of cities and how they affect us. You know, so there's lots of different kinds of theoretical strands, which I think are are useful uh, tools in creating a, a sort of more general or broader discourse, which will allow people to combat this. These, these gentrification processes so yeah so that's really what the what the, what the plan is um how successful i'll be i don't know we'll see but uh it's it's an exciting project and one which i think is um yeah much needed thanks for listening to new books and critical theory on this episode i was talking to ollie mole about urban subversion and the creative city published by routledge in 2015